There are plenty of things to fear in Australia. There are killer sharks, three species, venomous snakes, a hundred species, poisonous jellyfish, and we don't even know how many species there are of those. And let's not forget those life-threatening rip currents. But for transfer pricing executives, the scariest thing in Australia is the ATO. One of the most sophisticated and aggressive tax agencies in the world, the Australian Tax Office has never been shy about its efforts to keep corporate tax dollars in Aussie land. It was one of the earliest tax authorities to put multinational enterprises on notice with the early adoption of OECD guidelines, the BEPS initiative, and country-by-country reporting. And let's not forget about the 2016 introduction of the Tax Avoidance Task Force, a group solely dedicated to scrutinizing the tax practices of MNEs. Now infusing the task force with resources, the ATO has become blatantly outspoken, rude if you ask us, about the fact that investigating the transfer pricing practices of MNEs is one of its favorite pastimes, I mean, highest priorities. Hello, everyone. It's Matthew DeMello, your host of The Fiona Show, Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And trust me, if you have any entities in Australia, and really, even if you don't, this episode is one you don't want to miss. Today, it's us who is doing the investigating, putting the ATO and its unique transfer pricing regime under the microscope to see what makes intercompany transactions in this part of the world so suspicious to tax authorities. And by us, I mean myself, Adam Sanford, the head of Cross-Border Solutions Professional Services Group Worldwide, and Mary Alcima, the company's expert on transfer pricing in Australia. As always, you can earn CPE credits by listening to this podcast. Here's how it works. We've planted two CPE code words in this episode. Listen for both of those code words and send them to The Fiona Show, that's all one word, at xbs.ai. It's that easy. Now, before we get started, let's take a look at transfer pricing in the news. You know when your office kitchen becomes such a mess, someone eventually puts up a passive-aggressive sign about it? Well, the 130 countries under the inclusive framework on BEPS decided enough is enough and released additional guidance for M&Es on the mess that can be country-by-country reporting. And talk about side-eye. They even included a list of 14 common errors made in CBC reports prepared by multinationals. Apparently, some of y'all aren't even filling in the tax ID field correctly, if at all. Uh, Did some of you spell your names wrong on the S? SATs too. Others are using the same tax ID for multiple constituent entities. Geez, how the heck do you noobs get through April 15th, let alone October 15th? The short of it, for those of you at least on your second rodeo, is the guidance addresses the treatment of dividends vis-a-vis loss or profit before income tax, income tax accrued that year, and income tax paid on a cash basis. All in Table 1. You know that place where you list all your financials in one happy little spreadsheet on a CBC report? Also covered is whether the tax authorities can apply local filings even when the ultimate parent entity technically doesn't need to file a CBC report, but the local jurisdiction just comes along and says, well, one of you has to. You know, maybe we should just be grateful the OECD didn't leave this guidance on a handwritten note shoved into a windshield or something. Anyway, quit using multiple currencies in table one and maybe we can just forget about all this. And now that France and the United Kingdom have thrown their unilateral hats into the digital services tax ring, other countries are growing less patient about waiting for a multilateral solution. Such overtures were made by the Canadian Liberal Party leading up to their victory in national elections last month, in which the party explicitly ran on a re-election platform of hiking income taxes on digital commerce by 3% for companies with worldwide revenues of at least $1 billion Canadian dollars, a bit over a billion American, and Canadian 
Canadian revenue greater than 40 million Canadian dollars. Surrey digital giants, but the Mounties get restless if they can't get a few drips of that sweet syrup you're pulling from the digital services tree, eh? Meanwhile, on the other side of the globe and the Cato Institute Human Freedom Index, Russia's Ministry of Finance, that's the MOF, is feeling the loss of revenue from sanctions in a sluggish economy and will not sit idly by as the rest of the world gets a piece of the digital pie. While still in the exploratory phases, a budget document released by the MOF in October recommended reviewing legislation in which digital profits would be declared by the users and customers in the jurisdictions where they reside. Russia already has the bureaucracy in place to levy the tax in exactly this way. It's almost like they've been planning this all along and can't tell. As foreign digital companies can do business in Russia without registering for and charging the value-added tax, or VAT, in the first place. Now all that's missing is the actual tax. But with the way a multilateral solution is coming along, you might actually be able to hold your breath long enough for there to be a Russian digital services tax before you lose consciousness, which is pretty fast as far as tax legislation goes. Everyone knows there's a scale to public punishment. First, there's the proverbial slap on the wrist. Then there's getting spanked at the grocery store like a toddler. Then come the guillotines. And somewhere between all of that is making the European Council's black and gray list annexes for tax havens. After the Panama Papers and Link Luck scandals, 28 EU finance ministers created these annexes to shame, quote, non-cooperative jurisdictions that serve as unruly corporate tax havens or otherwise exercise policies the group deems harmful. First, there's the Annex 1, or the blacklist, for worst offenders, then a second annex or a gray list for countries in the process of making reforms. Call it a better-than-naughty-but-not-yet-nice list. Haven shaming from the EU via these annexes leads scores of countries through the hoops of EU and OECD tax uniformity all the time. In October alone, Albania, Costa Rica, Serbia, and Switzerland all moved their respective ways off the gray list. And this month, recent reforms in Belize in the Republic of Macedonia have led the EU Code of Conduct Group on Business Taxation to announce recommendations that the Council remove the two countries from their respective places in the annexes. But not so fast Belize, said the Code of Conduct Group, who only recommended moving the country from the blacklist to the gray list pending implementation of the country's promised reforms to their source income exemption regime. Meanwhile, the Republic of North Macedonia is on the fast track, scoring a recommendation they be removed from the gray list entirely thanks to their ratifying the OECD Multilateral Convention on Mutual Administrative Assistance, or MAC for short, as part of the country's fervent EU membership bid push. Ratifying the convention enables North Macedonia to more easily share tax collection information on MNEs with other participating states. So we'd say make sure your documentation is airtight in North Macedonia now, but honestly, the more countries move off the EU Council annexes, join the convention, and start sharing info with other members, the more you just need airtight documentation everywhere. Note to multinational companies everywhere, if you think the coronavirus has affected your bottom line, take a look at how it's devastated the economies of governments around the world. And where do you think tax authorities will look to make up for all that lost revenue? That's right, your transfer pricing. You can't afford to be non-compliant, but then you probably can't afford to pay for an overpriced consultant who bills by the hour either. Oops, sorry, big four. We've got the answer. Cross-border solutions, AI-powered transfer pricing software keeps you in compliance by preparing accurate, hyper-localized reports that protect you from transfer pricing audits, 
penalties and adjustments. And our technology is available for one flat fee, a fraction of what you'd pay a big name consultant. Again, apologies, Big Four. Stay in compliance and on budget with cross-border solutions, AI-driven transfer pricing software. It's no wonder we're the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. There we go again. I'm so sorry, Big. You know what? Wait, who am I kidding? Sign up for a free demo of cross-border solutions transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai slash tp. That's xbs.ai slash tp. Before joining us, she spent a year as a consultant at PwC in Argentina, and before that, she worked as a transfer pricing consultant in PwC's Australian office, where she conducted economic analyses, functional analyses, and industry research in-depth enough to satisfy the ATO. She's tackled countless transfer pricing reports, consulted clients on a variety of projects, and helped form transfer pricing strategies across the board. Please welcome Marielle Sima. Thank you so much for joining us, Marielle. Thanks, Matt. That's super nice and warm. Welcome to the show. Oh, we always love to, to make everybody feel right at home. And it's a very interesting background that you have. Let's hear a little bit more about it. And for that, I'm going to hand things off to my trusty associate, Mr. Adam Sanford. Hey, Marielle. So, Marielle, these are a couple of get-to-know-you questions. How did you get into transfer pricing? So, yeah, I will be quite honest with you here. And and the reality is that um, I was about to, to finish my university degree when I said, okay, it's probably time for me to get started and look for a job now. Um, and it's in that, by that time that I got to see this transfer pricing analyst position at PWC in Rosario, which is my hometown. Um, and I started to slowly um, get into it and, and doing some research, going to some interviews where I found out that it was all about um, some taxes involved and some cross-border transactions, um, economic analysis. And then I said, okay, we can give it a try. Uh, and that's basically a way to start it back in 2011. Oh, wow. So, so many years ago. And... What do you enjoy about transfer pricing? What I enjoy the most is the fact that transfer pricing has been a hot, hot topic in the last few years. Um, and because of this, tax authorities have been trying to change um, the way things are getting done in terms of transfer pricing. They've been updating or implementing transfer pricing rules, um, which means that there is a completely new um, landscape in terms of transfer pricing. So this is basically working on a completely um, constantly and rapidly changing landscape, um, which means keeping up to date every time. So that's what I enjoy the most. We mentioned earlier that you lived in Australia while you worked for PwC. How long did you live there and what was it like in Australia? Um, so I've been in Australia for five years. Three out of those five years, I've been working at PwC in Sydney. Um, so what I think I enjoyed the most was um, to get to see what the Australian culture is like and to see that, um, if you will, you have many different opportunities and you you can have a great lifestyle there, you know, living by the ocean and 
and still having a pretty well balanced life. Okay, so we, we all need to make plans to, to get to Australia one day. That's what I understand there. Why not? So, Maria, what makes transfer pricing in Australia challenging? What makes it challenging is the fact that we see in Australia new things that are happening, but we also see things that never happened before in terms of transfer pricing around the world. Um, so I think that payers um, have been facing situations where new transfer pricing regulations were be- being implemented, and they were not necessarily prepared to tackle and, and to be compliant with n- those new transfer pricing rules. Um, and this is, I guess, a result of um, the tax authority, the, the Australian Taxation Office, or, or the ATO, um, being quite um, active in terms of transfer pricing for the last few years. So, so I think the challenge for Australian taxpayers is to, to, be, uh, to keep updated, to get to know everything about TP, um, and to make sure they are compliant and preparing things the way the ATO likes it. And what are some of the changes you observed in terms of transfer pricing in Australia, maybe while you were there and since you've left? Apart from new local transfer pricing regulations, what I could see there and what what it's been happening for the last few years is that the ATO has been constantly implementing new rules. um, And these rules were not only in relation to transfer pricing documentation for um, some of the transactions, but also trying to see different ways of um, targeting some specific industries and trying to get as much information as possible from taxpayers um, so that they could identify what they consider are the most um, risky industries and transactions. So I guess the big, big change is the efforts that that the ATO has been um, dedicating to transfer pricing has changed significantly. Yes, and I just want to interrupt very quickly for our first CPE code word, and that code word is beach, as in dealing with the ATO is no day at the beach. And back to you guys. Yeah, and Marielle, recently I I was reading and uh, transfer pricing was identified as the number one tax risk challenging multinational professionals in Australia. Yeah, that's right. Uh, And it's it's been definitely something that... um, Professionals, transfer pricing, professionals in transfer pricing had to work a lot on just because, as we were saying before, it's a constantly and rapidly changing environment. So um, this implies constantly learning what's happening um, and people to, to stay on top of things. What are some of the changes you've observed in terms of transfer pricing in Australia? And Mariel, what about the Tax Avoidance Task Force that's part of the ATO? Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Yes. So, so this is in relation to the efforts being dedicated by the ATO, just trying to get more and more of the team focused on different type of taxpayers, just to be able to identify, along with some other measures, which are the industries or the transactions that could be the ones that the ATO should be paying the most attention to. I also recently read that they will receive an additional $1 billion Australian dollars between now and June 2023. And over the last two years, that task force has collected just over $5.6 billion and raised an extra $10 billion in tax liabilities. 
Yeah, it's crazy, right? Right. Busy people at the ATO. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about Australia's Practical Compliance Guidelines, or PCGs. The ATO began launching them in 2016. What is its purpose? So actually what the ATO is trying to do in this case, so because they are launching or they are implementing so many different transfer pricing rules, um, they try to give taxpayers some guidance on um, how to um, address and how to react and be compliant with the new transfer pricing regulations. Um, and, and I guess um, this is pretty useful for the taxpayers to understand, I guess, what the ATO is really expecting in practice. Also for some taxpayers to identify whether it's worth it, depending on the risk of different transactions or the business they are involved in. And also to probably identify different risks, risky situations that they should be actually not. And I just want to take a break right there to ask Fiona a question. Fiona, what were some of the ATO's recent practical compliance guidelines about? Well, there are many. Recently, the ATO released a PCG about inbound distribution arrangements. There was another earlier this year on the OECD's hybrid mismatch rules. The ATO releases these guidelines as a way to ask the taxpayer to think like the ATO. The tax authorities want the taxpayer to assess its own risk and be proactive about putting itself in a better tax position. Makes things easier for them, that's for sure. Yes, definitely. Um... So the ATO is trying to show the taxpayers and somehow advise the taxpayers on how to address and how to be compliant um, with the different transfer pricing rules. Mm -hmm. um, the ATO knows that there is a lot to take on and many times rules are being implemented with not a lot of time between implementation time and deadlines for um, presenting filing the documentation. Okay. So the ATO here is trying to go um, talk to the taxpayers and um, somehow show them what's really what they are after. And just so we have this straight, so the taxpayer assesses its own risk and then can be proactive with the ATO in correcting what's wrong with the transfer pricing profile, correct? Yes, that's right. That's right. For some of the, of the particular transactions, they would be able to assess the risk. For some other ones, they would be able to, to assess whether it's relevant for them or not. So I guess it would really depend on each of the transfer pricing regulations, but then they will definitely guide it by the ATO how to proceed on how much risk they are facing and how to action on that. So the ATO makes that part of the taxpayer's job. So then if the taxpayer knows, hey, I'm at high risk here, it's incumbent on them to adjust their behavior while the ATO doesn't have to allocate more resources, which is kind of brilliant in a way. It is good. I, I think the ATO is, is trying to get taxpayers to do the things right. Um, just for, for the sake of, of everyone, I would say. I mean, it's best for the companies, for the taxpayers, and it's also best for the ATO and even the society, different experts are paying the right amount of tax. And I think that's what the ATO is, is trying to get in the last few years. We covered multinationals identifying their own audit risk. How many of those multinationals usually end up in a high-risk zone? I would say it's something around 
75% of the entities, just because of being such such big type of groups, they are exposed to many different type of transactions, and they are usually involved in debt financing or IP transfer, which are transactions that the ATO is definitely um, looking at at the moment. Absolutely, and that makes sense that if they're going to ramp up their efforts, they would need to if 75% of their taxpayers are considered high risk. And, and let me ask, is this unusual, that this risk assessment on the ATO's part? Do other countries have this kind of system? Specifically, I'm referring to how taxpayers can identify if they're in a red zone or a green zone with how the ATO system works. Yeah, so this is um, particular for debt financing transactions. Um, and it's definitely something uh, that has not been seen before. So it's something completely new, uh, and that's why, along with transfer pricing regulations, we are getting these um, practical compliance guidelines where the ATO is trying to somehow teach taxpayers, educate taxpayers on how to assess where they are compliant or not, and whether they are getting involved in risky transactions. And this is one of all the things that the ATO has been doing. Um, the ATO has been definitely, let's call it active, um, if not aggressive, right. for the, in the last few years. So this is one of those measures. And which kinds of transactions are the ATO targeting, Marielle? So I guess as we were saying before, they, they are really looking into um, debt financing transactions also looking into IP transfers. But it's interesting because we would think about these different or more risky transactions. But then what you find about the ATO is that even the most traditional, let's say, um, transactions, like, let's say, distribution arrangements that have been no question by the ATO in the past are now being questioned. So I would say if transfer pricing in place in cross-border transactions in place, um, you might definitely need to look at those and make sure that you are compliant regardless of the type of transaction. Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello, and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern-day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country-specific regulations. Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us for Transfer Pricing University every Tuesday and Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern. Classes are free, so now you really have no reason to miss it. Sign up at xbs.ai slash tpu. Australia, of course, is a member of the OECD, and so it has adopted the arm's length principle. Yet, Australia has its own documentation requirements. Mario, could you tell us a little bit about them and how they differ from the standard OECD guidelines? Um, it is mainly following the OECD guidelines. And when we think about Australian transfer pricing requirements, we need to think about two big things for two big groups. On one side, we will have the transfer pricing documentation. And on the other side, we would have the country-by-country -country reporting. In terms of country-by-country -country reporting, and again, this is something that is probably 
quite different in Australia and not in the rest of the world. Australia has implemented a system in which taxpayers are to provide country-by-country reports, master file and local file. In terms of country-by-country reports and master file, these are um, aligned with the OECD requirements, so no, no surprises from those ones. But in terms of the local file, um, we would probably usually think about local file as being transfer pricing documentation, the transfer pricing report. But actually, this is more of a form that we find in Australia. It has some qualitative information in there, but it's also collecting a lot of transactional data and um, quantitative information. And this is mainly because the ATO is trying to get information in their system so that they can work on numbers and financials and type of transactions and really try to target the transactions and the type of entities that they consider risky. So this is still quite different. And also because Australia has this TVC report part, but they also have transfer pricing documentation, which is more aligned with OECD requirements, still with some differences in there, where taxpayers need to respond to what the ATO calls the 5G question framework, and it's basically taxpayers responding five different questions throughout the transfer pricing report to make sure that they are compliant and that they are in a position which is what the ATO calls in a reasonably arguable position. And so what makes those files different? What information do they ask for that says we wouldn't be producing in a transfer pricing report? So I guess it's more of, a, of the, um, in relation to the way that report is structured. Just because they, um, the ATO is saying, okay, we need to prepare the report or taxpayers need to prepare the report in such a way that it um, is positioning itself in a reasonably arguable position, which means that the taxpayer needs to somehow respond to some questions that the ATO is looking for. When you think about those questions, they are probably um, pretty standard in the, in the way of um, considering which information to get there because we would look into um, which type of transactions are we analyzing, which kind of economic analysis can we include, which are the results for that economic analysis, but then the way it is structured in the report might be a little bit different. Or at least you need to make sure that you are covering all of that information so that the ATO is not coming after you to tell you okay, I see there is no substance in, in the transaction that you are mentioning, um, we will restructure in the way we think it really happens. But then I, I guess what is really important is um, in terms of, as I was saying before, probably benchmarking is the whole world in Australia just because the ATO wants local comparables. And just to pause quickly to ask Fiona, Fiona, what types of information does the ATO require in a local file? I'm afraid that's an everything but the kitchen sink kind of answer. The ATO requires a description of the organizational structure of the reporting entity, including the individuals to whom local management reports and the countries where they maintain their principal offices. It also requires a description of the reporting entity's business and strategy, a description of business restructures affecting the reporting entity, and a description of any transfers of intangibles. Be sure to explain the significance of the business transactions and restructures and also, list key competitors of the reporting entity. Controlled transactions and financial information are also required, 
And and Mario, what about benchmarking from an ATO perspective? What what are their expectations? Well, so I guess they will accept either local or regional companies. But the thing is, if taxpayers don't really try to adapt themselves to what the ATO is expecting, then they are facing a high risk that the ATO will apply an adjustment to their results. And trust me, when I say that you have to be creative when performing benchmarking studies in Australia, I'm not kidding. You really need to find out what the ATO is after. Many times I've seen that although you were not able to get Australian transfer pricing comparables when performing a search, you had to somehow build a range that the ATO would like. This meaning just probably manually adding companies that you knew that the ATO would accept, which would not necessarily be accepted in most of the countries. Right. Living there and understanding the ATO's perspective gave you creative ideas to make sure that they accepted the transfer pricing studies that you submitted. Right, right. You, you really need to find a way because if you are after local comparables as it's preferred by the ATO, then finding those one would have been a super complicated, if not impossible task. Then you had to somehow find a way out from this and play around it and look for companies that you know the ATO would like. And I just want to interrupt one more time for our last CPE code word, and that word is strict, as in the ATO is extremely strict when it comes to transfer pricing. And back to you guys. If you want to guarantee a chance of a reasonably arguable position, as you mentioned, Mario, what do you have to make sure documentation includes? So I guess taxpayers should be looking at preparing their documentation in such a way that they are responding to what the ATO calls the five questions framework and please let me read through these questions which are pretty specific and that will let us know which kind of information we need to include. So we will have the first question which is what are the actual conditions where taxpayers will need to explain which are the transactions that they are looking into, um, which are the transactions that they are trying to analyze. We would then have the second and the third questions which are what are the comparable circumstances and what are the particulars of the methods used to identify the arms length condition? We would then have a fourth question where taxpayers will have to talk about which are the arms length conditions and basically talk about the comparable search um, that they found out in order to test and analyze the transaction with an international related party. And then the last point taxpayers need to cover is to to respond whether there have been any changes as compared to the past, basically. And how often do you have to prepare documentation? So taxpayers have to prepare transfer pricing documentation every year. Although this is not compulsory, they want to be protected against penalties, they have to prepare this by the time of lodging the tax return every year. So they need to be on their game. And what is the likelihood of an audit in Australia for a multinational? Um, I guess these days it really depends on the industry and the type of transactions the entities are operating in or the transactions they are getting involved in. So I would say that if you are a pharma company or a technology company, then the likelihood is pretty high. Same as if you if you are entering into intercompany financing transactions. 
um, the ATO is currently targeting these these industries uh, and this type of transaction. And in that possible audit, what are the chances an adjustment would be typically made? The ATO would usually come up with an adjustment. Um, I would say half of the time, the ATO would propose some changes. Mario, in 2017, the ATO adopted the justified trust concept from the OECD. What happens during a justified trust review, or as they're also known, streamlined assurance reviews? So what it happens is that the ATO is going after some of the biggest taxpayers. And for these taxpayers, the ATO is trying to assess what the risks are in relation to the transactions in which they are participating. So as we were saying before, the ATO is increasingly dedicating more and more efforts um, in trying to, to get the big companies, the big taxpayers, transfer pricing rights. And you briefly touched on what is assessed in these reviews. Could you elaborate a little bit more on that? Yes. So they would be assessing on whether there is a risk in relation to the transaction itself based on what's the nature and the size of the transaction. And they will also try to see whether these transactions that are considered risky are being managed in the proper way or in an accurate way so that to guide the taxpayers to somehow get compliant and in track to have all the transfer pricing documentation and to ensure that their transfer prices are aligned with what the ATO is expecting. Great. And what, what are some red flags for transfer pricing audits in Australia? I guess it's what we were saying just before. If you are in some specific industries or if you are involved in some particular type of international related party transactions, then that becomes a red flag until you prove that there is no risk around it. So as we were saying before, if you are operating in the pharma industry, in the technology industry, or you have international related party transactions involving intercompany financing or transfer of IP or permanent establishment, then I think you have a red flag for a taxpayer to to be looking at and to probably be waiting for a notice from the ATO. You know, I, I once read when the price is off, changing the story, not the price, is a red flag. What if the ATO notices a lot of activity in low tax jurisdictions or MNEs showing low profits or reported losses? So I guess the ATO would be looking into proving whether the substance of the transactions that are being entered into um, related parties is really what the taxpayers are saying that those are. So they will see whether that substance can be first if it is really happening and second whether it's justified and whether it makes sense. Saying whether it makes sense it means would third parties have ever entered into similar arrangements. What are your recommendations for multinationals with foreign entities transacting with Australian companies? If you have transactions with an Australian entity, then you need to make sure that you have all the transfer pricing documentation in place, but you also need to be aware that um, there might be an adjustment coming from the ATO. And the other thing to be looking into is to be aware because the ATO is targeting many different aspects of transfer pricing. Um, not only staying with preparing the transfer pricing documentation for what we would call traditional arrangements, but he's trying to target many different types of transactions 
uh, and it's getting very detailed in which type of information it is getting for for doing this. If you have a transaction with an Australian entity, make sure you have considered all the transfer pricing requirements. And I think based on what we've learned about the ATO up until now, multinationals need to ensure that they have a robust narrative in, inside of their report before they submit it to the ATO. Yes, that's correct. A global pandemic, a grim economic forecast, feeling the squeeze, an R&D tax credit can help lower your burn. If you qualify, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. So what's stopping you? If an expensive application process is turning you off, sorry, now you really have no excuse. Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven R&D tax credit software eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. After all, why should you have to spend your whole R&D tax credit on getting your R&D tax credit? It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. Request a demo today. Visit xbs.ai/rd. That's xbs.ai/rd. And that seems like a great place to end. Well, not end. It's time for my favorite part of the show, what we want to know. Get ready, Marielle. Uh, here's how it works. We put a transfer pricing hotshot in the hot seat. And today, that is you for a rapid-fire round of questions. Are you ready? Yes, I think so. Let's <laughs> Excellent. And here we go. Name one transfer pricing mistake you can't believe m are still making. Considering that there is not enough budget or time to take care of your transfer pricing matters. Ah, budgeting. Yes, yes, yes. The death nail for, for so many good intentions. A coworker describes you as super intelligent. Another describes you as super hardworking. Which one means more to you and why? Um, I would love to be the two of them, but if I had to choose, I think... Um, it's pretty important to be smart enough these days when working um, in transfer pricing because of the rapidly and challenging landscape that we are facing right now. And how do you handle your bleep hit the fan moments? Um, keep calm and do transfer pricing. <laughs> is that is that what you do to relax? More transfer pricing? <laughs> no, that's really. <laughs> <laughs> and what is one of your strategies for managing up? Um, I think. Good communication, trying to stay close to clients, um, being proactive. I hear that. And people define success in different ways. What's your definition? Um, achieving results um, in the way that best fits to each particular situation. Um, and I guess in this aspect, it could be um, getting to know the clients, knowing what is best in each particular situation and getting things done. Amen to that. Mariel, thank you so much for being with us today, making time for this and being our resident Australia expert. And thank you listeners for tuning in. Want more transfer pricing news, issues, trends, updates, and more? Subscribe to The Fiona Show on iTunes or Spotify, and we'll fill you in on transfer pricing every week. Let's not forget about The Fiona Show, hot off the press, where we dive headfirst into transfer pricing headlines every week. This podcast was edited, engineered, and hosted by yours truly, Matthew DeMello, our executive producer, Mary Lynn 
Mitchum Strom writes our scripts. That's all we have for today, so feel free to get back to it. And if that includes any transfer pricing business in Australia, beware of the sharks. And we're not talking about the ones in the ocean. 